From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As the Taliban overtakes at least a dozen provincial capitals in Afghanistan and the U.S. leaves in defeat, I speak with historian Gerald Horn, who gives his eulogy on this country's longest war. It's difficult to quarrel with the analysis that Afghanistan might be the most disastrous foreign policy ever devised in Washington. And in a major milestone in the five-year battle to save a desecrated African cemetery in Maryland, Descendants of those buried at the site file a lawsuit to prevent the land now covered by a parking lot to be sold to another land developer. This is a clear example of the destruction of African-Americans' ancestral graveyards in the Montgomery County, Maryland, and throughout the United States. All that and much more coming up on the show. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. The Taliban has captured more than a dozen provincial capitals in Afghanistan, giving them control over all but three major Afghan cities, including the capital of Kabul, which U.S. military advisors say could fall in less than a month or before U.S. troops are scheduled to finish their deployment there on August 31st. Our eulogy for the Afghanistan war, which has killed hundreds of thousands of Afghan civilians, killed or wounded thousands of soldiers, and cost at least $2 trillion, is later in the show with Professor Gerald Horn. This week's report from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change offers the latest dire warnings that the burning of fossil fuels has altered the climate producing unprecedented planetary warming, glacial melting, sea level rise, and other changes that are wreaking havoc in every region of the globe, wiping out entire towns and imperiling biodiverse ecosystems. One central finding of the new analysis is that policymakers are failing to take the necessary steps to curb greenhouse gas emissions called for in the Paris Climate Agreement, And so the goal of limiting global temperature rise to no more than 1.5 Celsius above pre-industrial levels is nearly out of reach. According to the report, the past four decades have been warmer than any preceding decade dating back to 1850. Atmospheric CO2 has soared to levels not seen in 2 million years. The report says, quote, many of the changes observed in the climate are unprecedented in thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, and some of the changes already set in motion, such as continued sea level rise, are irreversible over hundreds to thousands of years. It adds that, quote, strong and sustained reductions in emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases would limit climate change. While benefits for air quality would come quickly, it could take 20 to 30 years to see global temperatures stabilize, end quote. A surge in cases of the Delta variant across the southern United States is hobbling health systems in Mississippi, Florida, and Texas, where overflow tents are being erected in Houston. Officials at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, 
announced that new COVID units are being set up in the hospital's parking garage and that they had requested assistance from the federal government, which was also sending doctors and nurses from the Department of Health and Human Services. Alan Jones, clinical director at the Medical Center, said that the state's hospitals could be headed toward failure. I mean, hospitals are full from Memphis to Gulfport, Natchez to Meridian. Everything's full. If there were, you know, schools starting back, if there were a bus wreck of kids, we would not be able to take care of all those kids at this hospital. We're in a pretty serious situation. When you see federal teams come in, it really needs to I think open people's eyes to the fact that it is a it is a serious situation. So we're hopeful that you know we can get people to wear masks and get vaccinated and, and kind of stay away from each other, and that this rapid rate of rise that we're seeing will plateau, peak or plateau, pretty quickly here, so that we don't get into a situation where there is nowhere to, to transfer a patient at all and we have to stop ambulances and some of the things that we just don't want to do as a system. That is our nightmare. We do not want to do that because we know when we do that, you know, not the COVID patients, but all the other patients, the heart attacks and the strokes and all these other things that we need to take care of that have time sensitive um, care issues, we're not going to be able to take care of. And that's not what we got into healthcare for. So, I hope people can just understand that it, it is a very serious situation. I don't want to say dire, and I don't want to say that we have reached the point of failure, but we are definitely headed that way. Despite the emergency, the governor in Mississippi, as well as governors of Texas and Florida, continue to politicize the virus and are resisting or are outright opposing mandates for masks and downplaying the need for vaccination. Virtually all new COVID-19 cases in the United States that require hospitalization or that lead to death are among the unvaccinated. Now, some of these same states are where other fights for human rights and constitutional rights are occurring. This week, more than 75 social justice organizations led by Color of Change sent an open letter to top U.S. Justice Department officials asking them to condemn new laws like one passed in Florida designed to criminalize street protests. The letter said that the laws obviously target Black Lives Matter protesters and censor and disrupt the First Amendment right to protest racial injustice. Similarly, voting rights are under attack, and Lydia Curtis has the latest. The fight for voting rights in the United States was dealt a blow on Wednesday when the Texas Supreme Court voided a lower court's order preventing the arrest of 57 Democratic lawmakers who fled the state on July 12th to prevent the passage of anti-voter legislation. In a dramatic move, Texas Democrats flew en masse to Washington, D.C., to prevent a quorum and vote on legislation that would impose new restrictions on voters in that state. Following the High Court's decision, members of the Republican-controlled Texas House voted 80 to 12 to direct law enforcement to track down absent members who have since returned to Texas and forcibly return them to Austin, the state capital. To avoid arrest, these legislators must again leave the state until legal protections are put in place. 
but some are fighting back. About two dozen of these Texas lawmakers remain in Washington. One of them, Representative Jasmine Crockett, spoke on MSNBC. Democrats tend to be the good guys. We need to be the good guys right now because we see what the bad guys are doing. And if they're doing it in Texas, they're going to do it in Georgia. They're going to do it in Arizona. They're going to do it in Florida. We see what they're doing. They are trying to take us down. And that's not what any of us should stand for. But we see that they are not the party of the Republicans that just have philosophical differences. We see that they are the party of Trump and, and the party of the Proud Boys and the party of insurrectionists. We need to save our democracy and we need to save it like yesterday. Also on Wednesday, August 11th at the U.S. Capitol, Senate Republicans blocked an attempt by Democrats to advance their signature voting rights and elections bill, the For the People Act. Senator Ted Cruz of Texas called the act a federal government takeover of elections. And Democrats say that this federal legislation is necessary to counter state efforts to restrict voting access, such as what is happening in Texas. For On the Ground, this is Lydia Curtis. Here in the D.C. area, the five-year fight to save a desecrated African cemetery in Bethesda, Maryland, marked a milestone on August 10th as descendants of those buried at the site filed a lawsuit to stop the sale of the land now under a parking lot. Montani Wallace, a plaintiff in the case, spoke Thursday at a news conference outside the Montgomery County Circuit Court. I'm speaking on behalf of Montani Wallace and the Mason family. I'm Montani Wallace, widow of Henry Wallace, who was the son of Gertrude Mason, who was the daughter of Geneva Mason and the wife of Wallace Mason. Henry Wallace was a father, a veteran, and a beloved member of our family, community, and a direct descendant of his great, great aunt Rosa Mason of the most of the Mason family. Great, great aunt Rosa lived in this community and was buried in the Moses Cemetery. This was a thriving community despite many harsh societal limitations. The Moses Cemetery is where great-great-aunt Rosa Mason was buried. The Moses Cemetery has been destroyed and the remains were thrown on a dump truck. What happened to respecting hollow ground? As a family, we lost a piece of our history and ancestral connection. This is a clear example of the destruction of African-Americans' ancestral graveyards in the Montgomery County, Maryland, and throughout the United States. In closing, I'm Anthony Wallace. I'm requesting accountability for the arbitrary destruction of our family, ancestral graveyard, and property. These graves were desecrated, and the land was taken. Many graves were dug up and improperly disposed of, which resulted in a loss of our connection to our ancestors. Thank you. There you go. Stephen Lieberman, co-lead counsel for plaintiffs, called the situation outrageous, explaining that Montgomery County's Housing Opportunities Commission, which is attempting to sell the parcel to land developer Charger Ventures CEO Jesse Henry, is violating a Maryland statute that specifically requires any person or entity selling property that is or was used as a cemetery to approach the court for permission to make such a sale. He said the statute empowers the court to determine whether the sale and proposed use of the property is appropriate, and if so, to impose conditions on the sale. We'll have more from the press conference on our website, 
onthegroundshow.org. And finally, in culture and media, the 14th African Diaspora International Film Festival, D.C., is happening from August 13th to the 19th, showcasing a lineup of 23 titles from 18 countries, with some of the titles selected from prestigious festivals, including the Venice Film Festival, Slamdance, TIFF, Fespaco, Berlinale, and the Pan-African Film Festival, just to name a few. The opening film is The Sleeping Negro, directed by Skinner Myers, a drama that tells us the story of an African-American man struggling with racism in America. Other films that might be of interest to on-the-ground listeners are Betrayal of a Nation, an experimental documentary that indicts the U.S. government on 18 charges for crimes committed against Black and Brown citizens. Fresh from the Encounters Film Festival in Cape Town, South Africa, is Murder in Paris by Enver Samuel, a political crime thriller that traces motives for the assassination of anti-apartheid activist Dulce September in Paris in 1988. Colorism and sexism in Tunisia is explored in the documentary She Had a Dream by Raja Amari about the story of Gofrain Binua, a young Black Tunisian woman. And the festival's all virtual. Information and tickets are at nyadiff.org. That's nyadiff.org. That probably stands for New York African Diaspora International Film Festival, if you forget. But this is for DC. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. We want to also talk about changing the entire paradigm of policing, and that means a whole new, different way of looking at policing. So we're going to call on Mr. Joshua Newman from Pan-African Community Action to talk about community control of police. Again, not community policing, but community control of police. We'll let Mr. Newman talk about that. Today, I will be speaking on behalf of Pan-African Community Action and our community control of the police campaign. Community control is a necessary function to grant people power and self-determination. Whether it be community control of education, community control over health and medicine, or community control over land. The basis for community control is to grant the people the ability to become self-determined. Now, 
We see community control of the police as a revolutionary action that can spearhead eventual community control over all other institutions that exercise current colonial control over us. CCOP is not a reformist campaign. We are not asking for state-sponsored community policing, which still allows the state to, to occupy our communities. We want an end to the current occupation. The current occupation is what is keeping us brutalized, imprisoned, and terrorized. Reform has not been effective at transforming the conditions of African and black people. Reform has allowed police budgets to rise and brutality and police terrorism to continue. Not only has the terrorizing continued, but it has been militarized through the 1033 program, which has transferred police $6 billion in militarized weapons. We saw those last summer as we protested following the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others. So in order to stifle the growth of the budgets and the militarism, we have to be revolutionary in our thinking. We have to begin to identify the police as an occupying army who does not answer to us or protect us, but rather answers to the capitalist class and protects their property in our communities. In order to get rid of the occupying army that is the police, we have to become organized. There is a dire need for us to be in organizations that are fighting for community-based power. Power is needed because power allows us to be able to implement, enact, or enact an idea, belief, plan, or decision and hold the capacity to protect it. In other words, if we want to see community control sustained, we need the power of the people to protect it. Community control has the capability of organizing the masses of our people towards taking complete control over institutions and strategically and tactically weakening the ability of the state. Community control over police specifically has the ability of disarming the armed wing of the state, thus weakening their domestic armed institution. This will allow the people to take over this institution and redefine and reimagine what public safety will look like for the community. However, this can only be done with the masses of our people organized and politically educated on the reason why public safety must be reimagined and why we are taking community control. Our process for gaining community control must start with organizing our community to form public safety patrols that we put together collectively through a participatory democracy process that centers the most marginalized people within our community. Amen. That process will eventually lead to campaigns that statutorily remove current police from the community jurisdictions. Pan-African Community Action, or PACA, specifically, is calling for the ballot initiative. This process allows us to place CCOP on the ballot where wards and districts within DC will have the ability to vote out police and vote for CCOP. If CCOP is won through the ballot, then we will organize a community council to manage the priorities, duties, and policies of our reimagined public safety force. PACA views the ballot initiative as a formal and legal measure used to organize the masses of our people around the idea of community control of the police. This formal and legal measure can also be used to draw out contradictions for the masses to see while being organized. But regardless of the outcome from the ballot initiative, CCOP will have the organized the masses in our community to keep taking steps forward. If we win CCOP, then it opens the door for us to look at public safety in a new way. Specifically, a way that empowers members of our community who are the most marginalized. If we lose the CCOP ballot, we will still have the organized masses in our community working towards a revolutionary action that can continue to be cultivated by organizations in constant political education. So again, the process for community control is not reformist, we are not appealing to the state, and we are not seeking state-sponsored community policing, or even civilian oversight boards.
What we want is organized community-based power that can transform how we look at public safety and how we struggle against colonial institutions. We want an end to the occupation in our community. Thank you. Okay. Mm, thank you. That's all right, brother. Again, as you listen to that, what you I think what you should take away from it, among other things, is that this is an ideological battle. We have to, we have to change the way we think about these things. There's that, that phrase of the definition of insanity is to do the same thing. Over and over again. Yeah. We have to have a totally different way of way we think about things, and community control of the police is one of those ways in which we can do that. I'm going to introduce another directly impacted person, Miss Nikki. She's going to come and talk about how this has impacted her. And then we're going to wrap it up by reading the names of the victims that we put up on a poster board here. Hello. Hey, Nikki. Hey, hey. Uh, my name is Nikki Owens. I'm the cousin of William Green. And the reason why I decided that as much as I hate being in the forefront and speaking, talking to people about personal things, I truly, truly believe that my cousin died that day because he was supposed to die that day. He died the way he died because he had to die the way he died. My cousin saved lives. The person who killed him was a terror on the police department. My cousin was not the first person he killed. He wasn't the first person he brutalized. He had 10 years of terror, well-documented terror. And they did nothing. And there was no accountability. They, they knew he was out here brutalizing people. They knew he was out here beating on people, filing false charges against people, but there was no accountability because he had a badge. But my cousin died and, and he saved lives. Cause he's in jail now, so he's not out here killing people. He healed the wrong person. Cause I'm gonna keep fighting for my cousin. I'm gonna keep fighting for Absolutely. All the victims of police brutality, I'm never gonna shut up. I'm never gonna be silenced. It doesn't matter because he didn't die for nothing. The best thing for me to come out of this is the people who have surrounded my family during this time and the people who surrounded me, like I would have never met these women. Amen. <laughs> Had this not happened, I would have still been complacent like a lot of citizens. I would have still watched it on television, knowing something had to be done, but not taking action and actually doing it. I actually had to be impacted for me to use my voice to try to make change. And that's the biggest problem with the black community, with all our communities, is that we either don't think it'll happen to us, or we don't take initiative until it does happen to us. And even though thousands and hundreds of thousands of people have been impacted, probably millions, by police brutality, there's also that fear, that fear of the police. Um, I don't have the fear of the police at all because we pay them. So my thing is, is I shouldn't have to fear you if we're paying your salary. But I know that a lot of citizens are harassed and brutalized and threatened and mistreated by the police. So I do understand that fear, but there just needs to be more 
of us out here talking and talking to them and going directly in the communities and telling them, don't be scared, we got your back, we're gonna stay behind you. We'll bail you out when they put you in prison. We're just gonna have to try to do something to get these people to speak up and stand tall and just fight against the system because it's a, it's a system and it goes high. It's not just within this police department, it's within this courthouse, mm -hmm. it's within these government buildings, Absolutely. it's within our federal buildings. Absolutely. It goes high. The system is broke. The whole entire system. And it's all driven by money. It's all capitalism. Capitalism there you go. drives it. There you go. So we have to figure out a way to stop them from capitalizing on us. They've been capitalizing on us since they brought us over here on boats. Uh -huh. There you go. Continue to capitalize there you go. So we have to figure out how to stop the capitalization on the bodies of black humans. And it's going to take a lot of us. It's going to take all of us, honestly. So I'm just here to say that I'm in the fight. And I'm going to show up. I'm going to show out. And I'm just going to do whatever I got to do. And I'm going to do this for William Green. Until the day I die. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Nikki. Question about this. One of the things Nikki was talking about is that we have a whole lot of George Floyd's right here in Prince George's. That's family. right. So we're going, and that's not to dismiss, of course, George Floyd's tragic death, but we want to acknowledge those names included in this piece that we put together. I'll call two ladies together it's from Community Justice, Beverly and Miss Tamara, to read off these names. Not on this um, list is, of course, DeMonte Ward Blake, because he tragically passed away last week, but he could easily be on this list. There are other names that we may not have on the list, and we apologize for that in advance. We're trying to update it as we go along, but we want to have these names, names read off in memoriam because every name means something. So. That's right. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, so we titled this piece, Say Their Names Before George Floyd, there was. Uh. And this is a list of what we could uh, pull together from publicly available data on individuals, loved ones who were murdered at the hands of Prince George's County Police Department from 1990 up all the way up to 2020, which was the last name we had. And hopefully we will not have to add any more. I mean, with that's right. actions like this and more people joining and understanding the importance of what we're trying to get across about these police and their activities that they've been just allowed to do. Hopefully we won't have to add any other names to this list. Alrighty, so I'll start off. <clears throat> First name, Adrian L. Keys, Albert Dwayne Denton, Amir Brooks, Amir. Anthony Andrew, Anthony Trice Jr., Archie Elliott III, Archie. Arvell Austin, Ashams Farrell Manley, Brandon Clark, Brittany Burks, Brittany Everett, Brittany Queen, Caesar Nathaniel Allen, Charles Ivy Huddleston, Charles Odell Smith, Chester Joseph Cresswell Jr., Christopher Dreyer, Clarence Edward Stewart, Corey Delante Joyner, David Edward Hall, Denard E. Mason, Derek MacArthur Foster, Derek Staten, 
Donald Lee Thompson Jr., Dwayne Keo Waiters, Edward Morales, Elijah Clay, Elmer Clayton Newman Jr., Fred Perkins, Frederick R. Miller, G.R. Hovey Johnson, Gary Hopkins Jr., Gary. Gary Hopkins, Gary Hopkins Jr., Gary Leonard Sanford, Glenn Tyndale, Gregory Allen Cooper, Gregory B. Boggs Jr., Gregory Camphill Jr., say his Gregory Camphill, Gregory Habib, Hans Gerard Horror, Ja'Kai Colson, Ja'Kai Colson, James. DJ Tolliver, James Edward Coleman. Way we say their names so that they will not be forgotten. We will continue to say their names. You want to read them? Oh, baby. Okay, I got it. James Henry Peebles, John C. Watts, Jonathan M. Washington, Jose Alvarez, Juan Carlos Gomez, Julie Marie Mead. Kelvin D. Polk, Kendall Grant, Keston David Lewis, Kevin McCarter, Leonard Shan, Leonard Shan, Lionel Lorenzo Young, Manuel De Jesus Espena, Mark Alexander, Marcus D. Skinner, Mark Anthony Blocker. Melvin Y. Dubon, Michael Anthony Bailey, Michael Graham, Michael Ricardo Minor, Michael Terry Smith, Michael W. Murphy, Michael Wills, Nathan Struther, Philip Charles Bowling, Prince Carmen Jones, say Prince his name. Carmen Jones. Prince Jones. Rashawn L. Richardson, Rico Donray Johnson, Robert Antonio Jones, Rodney Duran Edwards, Rodney L. Sims, Ronald Delante Royal, Santos Udiel Romero, Sidney Clanton, Terrence Toshe Thomas Jr., Come on, sir. Thomas Charles Cox, Tanya Michelle Bugs, Trayvon Dotson, Tyrone Antoine Harris, Victor J. White, and William Howard Green Jr. Say his name. William Green. Again, we lift all of their names up so that they will never be forgotten. That's right. And that we will move forward with this fight. Thank you. That's right, sisters. Thank you, ladies. So we're going to wrap it up now, but uh, first we're going to have announcements uh, and the next steps. If you are interested in joining the coalition, we have a sign-in sheet here where we get your name and uh, any information. I don't see any unfamiliar faces here, but if you're interested in joining, certainly we'd love to have you join us. And next steps, uh, I believe it is September the second. The second Monday. The second Monday of September, we'll be doing this again. The website is justice for archie 
Archie.com. Justiceforarchie.com. At that website, you can get um, a link to the Graham Report. You can also get a link to read about the Brady uh, List. So you can get all that information at the website. And if you have any questions, you can also call us. Um, you can call Attorney Ruffin uh, at 202-561-2898. Or you can call myself at 240-305-2921. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Gus. Thank you. You have been listening to those rallying outside the Prince George's County Courthouse on Monday, August 9th, in an action organized by the Archie Elliott III Coalition for Justice. Coalition members said that they were protesting to demand accountability for policing in Prince George's County, Maryland, and to demand accountability for county officials. The coalition is named for a young black man who died in the custody of Prince George's County Police in 1993. Moose, one. Do you
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, August 31st is the deadline announced last month by President Biden to withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan, officially ending this country's longest war, which has cost at least $2 trillion. From 300,000 up to a million civilians were killed, more than 73,000 Afghan soldiers and police, along with more than 7,000 U.S. soldiers, contractors, and other allied troops. Meanwhile, the United States military and the CIA are under investigation for war crimes, including torture and rape in Afghanistan and at so-called black sites. Well, here to help on the ground eulogize this country's longest war, which some are calling this generation's Vietnam, is our geopolitical analyst, the author and activist, Professor Gerald Horn. The most recent of his more than three dozen books is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, I said in the intro that the war is officially ending because in these early days of August, the United States is actually continuing an aerial war in Afghanistan, already bombing reportedly a high school and health clinic as the Taliban has captured at least nine provincial capitals. Uh, U.S. military officials now believe that the capital, Kabul, could fall in one to three months. So let's just start with your top line reaction to the, this defeat of the United States in Afghanistan and this withdrawal of troops. Well, there are many contenders for the dubious title of being the most catastrophic U.S. foreign policy uh, ever devised. Uh, some might say the invasion of Iraq in 2003, which had the unintended consequence of strengthening Iraq's alliance with Iran. Others could point credibly to the anti-Moscow Cold War, which had as an unintended consequence strengthening not only Japan and Germany, but also the People's Republic of China. But it's difficult to quarrel with the analysis that Afghanistan might be the most disastrous foreign policy ever devised in Washington. And I say that because if you, even if you look at the official story, which is that the United States invaded Afghanistan in October 2001 to dislodge the Taliban, which supposedly would not turn over al-Qaeda, which was blamed for the attack on New York and Washington on September 11, 2001. Well, even if you accept that analysis, it's clear that it doesn't go far enough. And in any case, even if you do accept that analysis, it's rather ironic, as your opening remarks suggested, that the Taliban might be returning to power as early as September 11, 2021 an ironic conclusion to a debacle. But the fact is that actually the United States began meddling in Afghanistan's internal affairs in the 1970s under Jimmy Carter and his hawkish national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski. The idea was to weaken the left-wing party then ruling in Kabul, speaking of the People's Democratic Party, and to somehow lure Moscow, the then Soviet Union, into what would be termed its Vietnam. It also involved this rather curious alliance with religious zealots, and it also involved as well the liquidation of the left 
in Afghanistan, if your stomach can take it, you should go online and look at the lynching, Negro style, of Najibullah, the last left-leaning leader in Kabul in the early 1990s, and you will get an idea of what I am speaking about. However, I don't think the story is over, even if the Taliban returns to power September 11, 2021, because I think that uh, Afghanistan has location. It borders on Iran. Iran is still in the crosshairs. It has a border with China. Obviously, China is in the crosshairs. And as well, uh, Afghanistan borders Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, which are close allies of Moscow. So I think that this tragedy in Afghanistan might be continuing. So Biden continued with this withdrawal, and that was actually initiated by Trump, if I remember. And that's not that fact isn't mentioned very much in the media coverage I see. But now, as then, the Pentagon is opposing the withdrawal. And now I'm seeing reports of not only more U.S. bombing, uh, but about so-called special forces staying in the country that will be doing more than just protecting the embassy. What's your take on that? Well, I think it dovetails with my last point, which is that you should not rule out the fact that the United States will continue to be involved in the internal affairs of Afghanistan, it'll probably be done under the guise of human rights, for example, protecting the rights of women, but it'll have everything to do with Afghanistan's proximity, once again, to Iran, to China, and to Russia's allies, which will open up possibilities for further meddling in those nations' internal affairs, and so I'm afraid the beat goes on. So you mentioned China, and I understand that Afghanistan is figuring very in a very complex way with China's politics and goals right now, so that they are uh, Afghanistan. Where where Afghanistan is situated means that China's very ambitious Belt and Road Initiative for global trade has to go through. Afghanistan, so that they would like to build a relationship with the Taliban, but they don't want the Taliban and other other religious groups to encourage the the um, kind of religious zealots and extremists and t- even terrorists that they've had to contend with in the Xinjiang region of China. So, um, what what's the latest on that? Well, the latest is that in the last few weeks, the Taliban sent a high-level delegation to China to meet with the Chinese leadership. And it's also true that China is very nervous about the possibility that a Taliban government in Kabul will seek to stir up religious zealotry in Western China. On the other hand, the Taliban, as you know, is very close to Pakistan, which in turn is one of China's closest allies in the neighborhood. And as well, Afghanistan has a storehouse of minerals that are waiting to be exploited by the Chinese. So there are different factors arguing in different directions. And so I think it's too soon to tell how this is going to shake out. That is to say, uh, whether or not the Taliban will cooperate with Washington against China or whether or not the Taliban in 
contrast will work with China. So I read somewhere that when historians like yourself write about this era of history, and I keep saying, you know, like what 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 history will there will there be to write about if we're we can't save the planet, but that this era will be called the era of the oil wars, right? And starting in the 1990s with the first Gulf War. And so this withdrawal for me is, is, is also coinciding with this tremendous climate emergency that more and more people can see right in front of our faces right now with these fires in the West, the Dixie Fire, more than a half million acres burned, fires in Greece, uh, tremendous floods in Germany and China and India. And so uh, I guess I guess I just wanted to get your thoughts about the fact that this these wars for oil are coinciding really with the with the final decades possibly when humanity could have turned things around in terms of getting off of fossil fuels rather than starting these wars in Iraq, you know, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, and, you know, now into Africa for oil. Well, what you're underscoring is the incoherence of Washington's policy, the fact that Washington talks out of both sides of its mouth. What I mean is, on the one hand, Washington talks a good game, talks a good game about the climate emergency and about this $3.5 trillion uh, bill now before Congress, which has billions pledged, we are told, to deal with the climate emergency. But on the other hand, as this week was unfolding, I was expecting, quite frankly, a U.S.-Israeli attack on Iran. And whatever Washington says, the underlying reason would be that Iran, in addition to supposedly being public enemy number one in Israel, also is a major oil power. And Washington still has this maniacal ambition of controlling the oil supply because Washington feels that will provide leverage over China in particular. But I don't think that this two-faced policy can go on much longer, not least because I don't think that this fragile planet can take much longer the intensified burning of fossil fuels. I've I've heard you say that one of the reasons why they do want to get out of Afghanistan, at least withdraw troops and have so much focus in the Middle East is because they want to direct their focus to China. And we know that just like they encircled Russia with all kinds of missile systems in these uh, in countries that they pledged that they would not <laughs> go into, that they are also uh, trying to encircle China. So I know that we've kind of, we're kind of as we kind of pivot away from Afghanistan a little. Why don't you talk about the I don't know the the next steps that you see in terms of the U.S. military. Uh, in the region of Afghanistan and as they try to pivot away toward China? Well, the key alliance is the so-called Quad. Uh, That means India, Japan, Australia, and the United States, which if you look at those countries on the map, that is basically the encircling policy of China. The problem with that particular arrangement is that Japan is quite nervous about 
going toe-to-toe -to -toe with China, needless to say, particularly since there's so much Japanese capital invested uh, in China. Likewise, China is a major, if not the major, trading partner of Australia. So Washington also wants to inveigle many leading members of the European Union to join this anti-China cabal. Thus far, its only recruit has been the minnow, that is Lithuania, which has endured a rupture with China because it's decided to improve relations with Taiwan, which is the rebel province off the southern coast of China that China claims is its own. And the United States, of course, is arming Taiwan to the teeth. There's another factor as well, which I think we mentioned on, on, on the ground, which is that Taiwan also uh, houses and contains Taiwan Semiconductor, which is the major manufacturer of these chips that are so necessary to modern vehicles and to iPhones alike. And if China does invade Taiwan, which supposedly it has threatened to do, uh, this could put China further in the passing lane than it already is. Are there any other developments in, you know, for example, Libya or you know, I saw a report out of Ethiopia. A lot of people are saying that, you know, the United States wants to make Ethiopia the next place of, of intervention. So is, are there any other places or that we should be looking out for or any other warning signs for other types of U.S. intervention in that area? Well, certainly the Horn of Africa, as you noted, but I would direct listeners' attentions closer to home, that is to say Cuba. Uh, in some ways, the Biden administration has outflanked the Trump administration on the right with regard to tightening sanctions against Cuba. It's a very dangerous turn of events, and it goes against the flow of what's happening in the hemisphere with the victory of the left in the Peruvian elections, with the victory of the left in the Bolivian elections, with Bolsonaro in Brazil with one foot on a banana peel and presumably on the way out unless he executes a coup. So clearly we have to put pressure, particularly in Washington, on the Organization of American States, which is a stone's throw from where you're sitting right now. So finally, you know, we're coming up on this 20th anniversary of 9-11, and 9-11 is the, you know, the pivotal event that gave way to the Afghanistan war. And I was just reading how many families of the victims of 9-11 have come together and they're telling Biden that, you know, asking him to not show up at any of these commemorations of 9-11 of if he's not going to release this, uh, these concealed uh, documents about the the involvement of the real perpetrators of 9-11, and that is the Saudis. <laughs> so I think that's very ironic. And I, I really want to watch and see what happens with these families because they're, they're holding his feet to the fire. They're holding, I think the administrations, the, the, the whole deep States, <laughs> you know, feet to the fire about this. And they'll remind people 20 years on about the real history of this. And maybe it will 
it will prompt more Americans to go back and look again and think about what started this debacle and how far we strayed from just just some kind of sane way of dealing with international and foreign policy. Well, we know already that 15 of the 19 hijackers on September 11, 2001 uh, were of Saudi origin. We know already that the Saudi diplomatic mission in Southern California had some very curious arrangements and ties to a number of the hijackers, our liberal friends wave that evidence away because they say that Osama bin Laden, the accused perpetrator and mastermind, wanted to overthrow the Saudi regime. So why would the Saudis cooperate with someone who wanted to overthrow them? I think that the response is is that there are rifts in the Saudi ruling elite. That's clear. If you look at the brief reign of Mohammed bin Salman, the uh, de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, who has arrested uh, many other leaders uh, in Saudi Arabia and has sent out hit squads uh, to attack his foes all over the world. So there's so much we do not know about September 11, despite the 9-11 commission. So I'm pleased to see that these families are holding Mr. Biden's feet to the fire, trying to compel him to release more documents, and hopefully they will succeed beyond their wildest dreams. Yes, well, we'll definitely be watching that story and watching those developments here in from Washington, D.C. I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And if you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter, where we have started to post the shows again. You can also follow me on Instagram at Esther underscore Averam. That's E-S-T-H-E-R underscore I-V like Victor, E-R-E-M. And the podcast is on all your podcast platforms under On the Ground with Esther Ivarum. Our theme music for the show is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. (laughs) 